It doesn't seem to um, have much to it. it. It hasn't improved that much since it went off the air. It could have been a lot better. It could have been slightly better written. It's a recruiting video for us to go. <laughs> That's all this year is. Pillar of hope. We need a pillar of hope in these times, and that pillar of hope is Jodie Whittaker. She is um, admittedly a very good actress. She just has to restrain herself a bit more. She seems very theatrical at the moment. You don't even have to watch it in order. Um, but I still felt that that story was fairly um, boring. So very cliched. It was very routine, running up and down corridors and silly monsters. It could have been slightly better. That's all the series. Yes. What, what were you saying about the theme just then? Uh, I was saying that with the, the fact that we've seen that Sagan can record a good theme obviously means that he can make good music. So the hate towards his making a suite that sounds like a backing track I think is unfounded considering we know he's already made a good track. And in my opinion, Jody's theme itself is quite good. And when I say Jody's theme, I mean 13's theme, not just the theme tune. Same while she's making a Sonic. Yes. And that sort of motif that gets reprised when she does that sort of Superman leap of the crane. Which, uh, uh, admittedly, I think is very good. I love that scene. What, the scene itself? I think the scene's great. I truly do. I think that whole, that crane bit there, just the jump, not necessarily the uh, confrontation with Tim Shaw. My issue with the crane scene is I don't think it really syncs up with how Shiba's been lionising the show was rising intellect above brute force and all that sort of Doctor who stuff, because... It's just a feat of athletic skill. There's no creativity or intelligence in the climax being 13 jumping really far. So it doesn't really ring true to me as like this great Doctor Who-iness he's trying to demonstrate to a new audience. Yeah, I get the sense that's more in the execution than the content. Cause like the Doctor doing a big jump, right? That's cool, right? She's brave, that's something she does, right? But the way they present it makes it feel a bit like she's superhuman. Like the impressive part is the fact she's done this massive jump. It's a bit, it's a bit pertwee. It's a bit sort of stunt action. The fact that it's it's a bit pertwee. Do you think that's a bit? Do you think that's a problem? Not in, not necessarily a problem, but I think they're going quite far with this version of the Doctor to suggest that she's you know she's all about the brains. Just she's a great person, and it's not about being able to you know, fight the battles and brawn and stuff like that. And I feel this kind of this cuts against that a bit. It might be insane. No, I don't think that's insane at all. I don't, I don't really agree is what I'm trying to say. It's interesting that she starts the episode falling and then the pivot point is her jumping. Maybe she flies in the next episode. <laughs> we can only hope. Well, Sim did, so there is precedent. Uh, I'd spoken to a friend t today uh, who had not watched t since Series 6 and she'd chosen to watch because of Jodie Whittaker that had been cast. Uh, and she says it wasn't she was it wasn't great TV. She knows it wasn't even very good Doctor Who, but she said that she'll be happy to stay and finish the series because it was easy viewing. You needed no prior knowledge. Whereas you know throughout the Moffat era, it was like there were there were motifs, there were 
uh, River, it was River Song comebacks. It was stuff that you needed to know in advance. It was great for fans. That's I think that's why we loved it so much. But it wasn't so great for the casual viewer. And I think what Chibnall's aimed for has succeeded. I thought the pilot was pretty good, as much as the rest of the series descended into continuity. To be fair, we are one episode into Chibnall, and I feel like if you compare this to the 11th hour, I don't think the 11th hour has a huge amount of continuity knowledge either. The difference between the 11th hour and the woman who fell to earth is that the 11th hour didn't feel hostile towards uh, people who were fans already, whereas the woman who fell to earth felt like an entirely different thing. It felt like uh, it was it was created for people who already liked, um, as has already been mentioned, The Flash, people who already liked Stranger Things. Uh, and it wasn't for Doctor Who fans, whereas the eleventh hour very clearly was. That I do get. Arguably, like yeah, that that's a huge part of Chidmore's approach with this, isn't it? He's sort of kind of avoiding the things that you know so the fans kind of expect and want, and kind of. Oh Christ, like, and I think that's a huge problem. Well, it's interesting because there's a line that goes directly out to that when Thirteen says, "We're all capable of the most incredible change. We can evolve while still staying true to who we are. We can honour who we've been and choose who we want to be next." Like it barely even fits into the episode. It feels like she's directly talking to us in a really weird. I feel way. like I think that was probably written before the actual episode itself was. That's a real jewel dropper of a moment, I think. I think both the performance and the music seem to shift into a different mode. Like, they know this is meta, got nothing to do with it. It's like a very special episode addressed straight to camera. I think it's also worth noting that, uh, I'm not sure about you guys, but I just didn't like Grace. I knew I was meant to like her, but I felt that there was nothing real to her. Uh, everything she did felt like exposition, and that's not a character trait, no matter how much Chibnall has tried to disguise that fact. That's really odd to me, because I really related to the nurse's WhatsApp group line. <laughs> Yeah, I felt that, the, the way you feel about Grace, I felt that like, like that about basically all the characters. I think that's, uh, it was inevitable with Chip and all that really, wasn't it? I was really fascinated by how one of the companions wasn't a character, in that Mandib Gill was just playing an expertisatory response device. God, yeah. Do you think that that, um, and this is really, this, uh, this is quite a also statement, do you think that, that there will always be one um, shafted? And I think, did you, so if that is the case, then it was obviously Yasmin, the first episode, do you think that will always be the case for every episode? Uh, well, in one zero, it usually happened to Susan, and it happened to Nyssa quite a lot later on. I feel like it has to be manageable. Like, other TV shows handle ensemble casts bigger than this just fine, but Doctor Who doesn't seem to ever be able to give three companions and the Doctor good weight to all of them in an episode, yeah. I feel like it must be possible to get right, we just don't see it gotten right very often. You look at the way Torchwood did it, and Torchwood handled it with uh, there was always a, a couple of a couple of uh, team members shafted, always, and uh, especially in series one. It's not quite as bad with Torchwood though, isn't it? Because you know they're all doing their jobs. There's reasons for some characters to not be in the forefront. Whereas with the TARDIS, you expect them all to have something to do. What do you think of how series six, the episodes with River, Amy, Rory, and Eleven? Do you think that was evenly handled? Uh, the Impossible Astronaut definitely was 100. percent Yeah, that, that worked absolutely fine. See, I think that has something to do with River's role, because at that point, River's still something of a mystery. So she, her personal arc doesn't have to have a huge place in the episode. So that's how that's able to work around what the other characters have to do. But you think of just the amount that uh, the amount of lines and the amount of scenes that they have themselves, each of the characters. You had Rory coming out of the TARDIS with uh, Can they even had Canton. So it was River, uh, Ar River, Arthur Darrell, uh, Karen Gillan, and there was Canton as well. So that's, there were technically four companions plus the Doctor's hand. That's a very good point. And we related to all of them. They were all that uh, they all had enough time to be fleshed out. You know what I just realised about Series Six? Yeah. Is that it starts with 
lionizing Nixon, and then there's a cuddly Hitler in the middle, and then Churchill's at the very end. That is a very interesting observation I've never thought before. Yeah. That's really weird. <laughs> uh, that, potentially, that potentially throws it into some re- keynote relief there, Hitler contrasting with the Nixon and uh, Churchill. Yeah, we've really got to think on that now. But Series 11 is a thing. Now, I'm interested, what else did we like, or what else did you guys like about the premiere? I think Jody did feel like the Doctor. That was something that I, I really did, uh, on the second viewing at least. I, I got a couple, there were a couple of moments in the first viewing where I thought, okay, she, she does feel like Doctor Who. This is the most Doctor Who part of this episode. Um, particularly the, uh, I already mentioned it a couple of times, the two minutes and 19 seconds quote. I really liked that. And there was also on the second time, I, know, <laughs> I, um, I also loved, um, uh, oh, okay, you don't like questions, more the private type, I get that. And it was very Matt Smith. And considering I didn't expect Chibnall to have the capability to create his own Doctor, falling back on a default is not a bad thing in my opinion. The initial line reminded me so much of Capaldi when she said, never go to anywhere, that's just initials. What did she mean by that? Also, the I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry reminded me of Tenet, except the way that she specified what the apologies actually were for was much more empathetic. It did feel a lot more real. She had actual empathy. Like, I think there's, there's a very concerted effort here in this episode to make her nicer and kind of sweeter, and I actually appreciated that, because that's a bit fresh. I think uh, something else, I'd, I've got a couple of notes that I've made, um, and something else that I'd noticed on the second viewing was uh, that she'd said, most importantly, how do we stop it? Because I don't think it's done uh, in the train scene, which had contradicted everything she'd just previously said about it not being malicious and saying, if it wanted to kill us, it would have done so already. Um, I don't know, there's probably a point to be made there. I haven't, I, I just thought I'd bring it up here. I think there is um, one thing, like the willingness to allow the Doctor to be wrong at certain points, that was nice. I mean, she assumes it's like a, a war between alien races and it, that turns out to not be true. Like, it's nice to have some fallibility. Something kind of on that note I liked was when Ryan was talking about her absence tea dad, she just nodded and kind of looked concerned. She didn't moralize Adam or offer advice. She just kind of took it in stride. Like, I don't see as many other doctors doing that. What's quite interesting then, I think, with that is that she's quite clearly going to take on a, a motherly role. She's going to be the, the, mm. the grace of the series. And I think that's, it's interesting to see um, the Doctor go from a paternal role in every single one of his incarnations to being a maternal role. And I think that's that's quite interesting for Chibnall, especially. Like that's that's to me that that's got potentially very fascinating, potentially problem tr- troublesome aspects. Because it's like in one sense it feels a bit like the doctor is replacing Grace, which creeps me out a little bit. I don't know why. I hadn't even thought of that, Giga. That's quite a good that's quite a good observation there. Well they're even equated right in the title. The woman who fell to Earth is intentionally meant to flick between them. Indeed. And Graham has that line, hey that sounds like something Grace would have said. You know, it's like oh, God, yeah. it's aligned with the Doctor already. Maybe this is hinting Graham's going to be the love interest. I mean, okay. I want it to be as, but, you know, whatever. What do we all think about the Swiss Army Sonic? I absolutely hated that. It felt like it was apologising for the Sonic in all the worst ways. Yes. And ex- explaining something that RTD and Moffat and classic script editors never felt the need to do. Like, just let it be. People can understand what a magic wand is. Everybody else has completely em- embraced it. And Chibnall, it, it felt like uh, it felt like embarrassment. Yeah, that was a weird take. Just something needs to kind of keep, like you shouldn't have that many words dedicated to the Sonic in any situation, let alone screen time. That whole montage of building the Sonic didn't sit right with me. The music was so like the rest of the music was soundscapes and it was very Stranger Things style, and they were nice. I enjoyed them. And then in the costume sequence and the Sonic sequence, it changed gears such a bizarre approach to like that screaming 
life insurance commercial strings, very artificial sounding, screaming out how to feel at you in all the ways everyone rags a marigold for doing, but I never felt was done like to this degree. I think that the, the music worked in the, um, the clothes scene, but it didn't work at all in the, the screwdriver scene, not at all. I think the contrast actually makes it more of a problem in this case. And when I say the contrast, I'm in between what Sagan's doing for a lot of the app, like the ambience, the abstract stuff. And then when we suddenly shift gears into this super emotive stuff, it's like, what the hell is going on? Even the direction did it. We got those bizarre RTD style zooms of the crystals she was building the Sonic out of. Like that was laughable. It seemed like a gag shot. Yeah, that, that was very jarring because it was so like inconsistent with the style of the rest of the app. This reference probably won't land, but it really reminded me of Footloose and that all the rest of the film is filmed in this really muted style. And then whenever the dance sequences come on, it's like the most energetic MTV video you've ever seen. It's like they're cramming these two completely different styles under the one director. I've spent my whole life avoiding Footloose. <laughs> I watched it. When I heard the song, it was like, Footloose, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> come on, I want to hear your rendition. You're not going to hear that. Speaking of songs, it, I, you know, I didn't expect this too much, but it annoyed me that the title was a Bowie reference and that we got no Bowie at all in the premiere. That would have been a nice nod to Capaldi as well. Somebody said, it might have even been you, Neo, but somebody said um, a little while ago that they assumed that um, Chibnall had originally named the episode something else and then saw all of the um, everybody saying that it should be called the woman who fell to earth. I thought, ooh, mm. that'd be a good, that'd be a good choice. That could have the been. title the title reminded me of big bang and that it was like a fake out the whole time referring to something else that was that and the ryan chronology thing referring to grace instead of the doctor were the only two things that made me think of moffat in the episode. well the big bang is more of a you know, kind of a sneaky gag on moffat's part like you can watch the episode yeah. and not get the joke at all <laughs> and it is a very specifically moffat thing isn't it do you guys think there's any merit to Twice Upon a Time's initialism meant to sound like twat? Oh Christ, yeah. Especially since he'd said that, um, <laughs> uh, since he'd said about a river song ending. Yeah. It's, that was, that is definitely, it was definitely intentional. It's Moffat's final triumph on the show. He gets a rude word into the title of an episode. He had always wanted to, so I, I think uh, him not knowing that it, that was going to be his final episode and then just going, fuck it, why not? Let's just go for it. And it makes it very easy to talk about, you know, if you don't like the episode. Speaking of things I didn't like, while a lot of the location footage of Sheffield was pretty and nice and all that, what I really didn't like about the direction was how weirdly staged or skipped over some stuff was, like Ryan and Yaz being in the woods in daytime and then an indeterminate amount of time processing and then it being completely dark, or the weird time skip between Grace dying and the funeral with 13 still in the same clothes and us having no sense what she was doing that whole time, or even them just coming to the rooftop to fight Tim Shaw and us having no, like, connective tissue to branch how they'd gotten there. You know, even apart from the weird tonal uh, inconsistency with stuff like the scene with a hammer in the car roof, or the eat my salad Halloween stuff, the direction felt so weirdly, like, the tone was not playing to the script's, well, maybe not strengths, but whatever the script was trying to do. It was so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the form and content are definitely at cross purposes in this episode. I feel like it's going to get swept over because there were legitimately really pretty shots of Sheffield, but if we're taking direction holistically, not just as like the visuals, but the, the performances, I really felt it was so weirdly handled. Did you and Giga think that there was anything about how the performances, 13s in particular, 
were developed or not developed across the episode. Why? Yes. I think in the case of 13, I got the sense that she was hitting very similar notes in the middle and at the end to how she was at the start. Like, and uh, a comp comparison here would be Matt Smith's you know, first episode, 11th Hour. When we, in when we meet him, he's with Amelia Pond. He's doing this very sort of understated, just kind of mischief. And then as, as the episode goes on, he kind of has to crank it up and up and up and go to totally different places. Whereas with, uh, with 13, she's kind of at this level when she starts with kind of being hyper. And she just sort of stays there. And by the end, when she's doing a big hero moment, it doesn't feel like we've, she's actually had much of a reformation. And even even on the level of individual scenes, right? You know, I watched an individual scene in an episode, and there isn't like a journey taken through it by any of the actors. They're all just kind of doing the same thing. And this is this is awkward for me because I've got a slight bit of a theatre background. And one of the things we were told we have to do as an actor is keep it interesting for the audience by going by modulating your performance from moment to moment. What that makes me think of is. Initial, the first episodes of a new Doctor normally either have them show a lot of range, like Nine doing the comedy and the mystery and the aggression in Rose, or Twelve, or the different notes he's playing in Deep Breath, or they have them, you know, meaningfully develop an arc, like in Doctor intro episodes like Eleventh Hour or The Day of the Doctor, but that wasn't happening here. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there wasn't much of an attempt to show her range. That is a very good point. I think it was Neo the other day who said something about um, all of um, 13's dialogue. Other than that meta monologue on the crane being snippets, it was too snappy for anything to be gathered about her, which obviously links to your point. What really verges me about it is I think Jodie was a really interesting casting. I think she absolutely is up to the role. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence or misguided. I don't even disagree with how people are praising her so much, but... <laughs> I just don't feel the script is giving a... The, the acting was good, but the writing was bad. And the acting was good, but the direction and the writing were bad. Well, Jodie's acting was good. Let's not... Oh, what yeah, what did you guys think of Ryan's performance? Mm. Mm, it, was, uh, it was iffy. I think they were all iffy, apart from Jodie, frankly. But uh, I, I, I quite liked Ryan's character towards the end anyway, and I thought... Um, I think he got he and Bradley got the chance to shine. Uh, especially towards the end, obviously, with the with, with Grace's demise. So I, th I think it's fair. I will confess, uh, to Tossin, who plays Ryan, he, he, he kind of annoys me throughout the episode. He's got lots of lines where he's like, Nan, we found a load of stuff. Well, anyway, enough about me. It, it, there's something, I get a slight sort of woodenness from him. Not the quite same woodenness I got from Danny Pink, but it's in that ballpark. I think uh, once it got to the YouTube twist, uh, I, 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 sort of, I sort of mellowed on him. Um, and I think that was just because he was given a chance to be a character. Rather than being somebody who delivered lines, he was he was given some emotion behind him. To that ends, I think the lines the actors were getting were doing no one favours. Like, thinking of exposition like... Uh, I feel like a total Reddit flagger saying something like, show, don't tell, but we got lines like, I just want to make you proud, yes to my friends. Presumably for that thing we saw in the alley. I reckon she's using my phone to track the origin signal for the DNA bombs. But why did that guy move this thing from the pics to here? But why? What data are they gathering? Promise you I won't be scared without me. This is my omen. I'm not having it be in an alien battleground. What the, the thing about the alien that annoys me more than the design, which is just, you know, class Sarah Jane Adventures tier, is that he expositions all his background and culture to 13 and the gang on the rooftop, which dulls his villainy because it's taking away so much mystery and it's making him talk for so long and you start noticing the weirdness of the design more. But the episode have 13 scanners pod before, 
so she could have reasonably deduced his background and then debated it with him or talked about it on the rooftop and actually had a dynamic back and forth about it instead of him just monologuing. Like, I felt like the script had such an easy answer to that problem already there and Chibnall didn't take it. Nothing about the villain really makes sense. I mean, I'm not really fussed about working out the plot logistics behind his motivations, but his behaviour, the way he's presented, like, none of the things really cohere. I haven't seen The Power of Three in a very long time, but did either of you guys get uh, Shakri vibes from it? Not just because it's a Chibnall uh, villain, but because there was nothing to it? In a sense, yeah, for sure. What offended me, well, what, what got me more about this was that he has a short-range teleport right because he says good luck on the rooftop and then goes away to the building site. But then he starts climbing the crane, presumably to give the audience some tension, and so Childs can do that lame shot with the reflection through Child. the new swords. Yeah. The director. What gets me is why didn't he just teleport to the crane? We already know he has a working short-range teleport. I mean, I assume Chibnall has some handway for that, like, oh, it doesn't do, uh, like, specific heights or some shit like that, I don't know. Speaking of heights, it's such a lazy way to add stakes to a story, just to find a reason to stage the climax up on a height. See, about the crane scenes, like, I felt there was no actual sense of height to them, like, there was no sense of precarity, I didn't feel like they were going to fall off any minute. This will depend on how the future episodes handle it, but I really hated how like, I don't know the extent of Ryan's dyspraxia, but he managed to climb up the ladder just fine, except for dropping the torch. <sighs> he has that moment where he slips a bit, it's like, ooh, yeah. then that's it, you know? I just, I, I mean, I really liked at the end how he wasn't cured or anything, he still couldn't ride the bike, but I worry his disability's just gonna not really inform the plot and just be there as like, look, we're doing this, you know, this character has this trait, and not actually bank it into any of the stories. Do you think I'm off base? Yeah, it'll be a necessary bike scene uh, when it's not necessary. Climbing up the ladder, it won't be there. I want to ask you guys if you think there's much of an arc or what you just think about these lines the Doctor says in general. So I'm going to read them out. When I can remember it, her name, of course I know it, it's right there on the tip of my eye. And then later, I'm trying to think, it's difficult, I'm not yet who I am. And then later... Me, I'm Owen's oh, gone again. I had it a minute ago. It's so annoying. Same question back at you. And then at the end, oh yes, I'm glad you asked. Bit of adrenaline, dash of outrage, and a hint of panic knitted my brain back together. I know exactly who I am. I'm the Doctor, sorting out fair play throughout the universe. And then at the very end, I'm just a traveller. Sometimes I see things need fixing. I do what I can. What did you think of all that? I think uh, putting it into, into context together, it sounds like... I mean, I prefer the idea that the Doctor's a traveller than the Doctor uh, sorts out fair play throughout the universe anyway, frankly, if I had to choose between the two. So the idea that she's uh, she's progressed uh, as a... Uh, I, th I think what, what it's getting at is that she's progressed into discovering who she is again, thinking she knows who she is on the crane scene, and then by the end of it realising, I'm just a traveller, I do what I can. And I think that works better. It interests me how both Capaldi in Series 8 and Jodie presumably, presumably in very Chibnall style, now seem to struggle reconciling I'm just a traveller or I'm just an idiot with the typical Doctor trying to be just and sort stuff out. Because I feel like whenever they get to that redefinition point of them being like classic who are wanderer, they undercut it right away. By like Capaldi in the next series going back to being a hero, then Jodie literally saying, sometimes I see things need fixing. Like, that's not a traveller, that's going out to fix things. Well, that's because it's at the heart of the show. The traveller thing is, at the, is is the sort of core that's been there literally since the beginning, really. Uh, so I think uh, to take that from 
to, to, to take the under from Doctor Who would be uh, it would be setting the show apart. It would be it would be too brave to do that to take the show apart from what people know it as. See, I'm not convinced that 13 actually has that problem reconciling these elements, or at least that she, she's written to have that problem. I get the sense that Chibnall wasn't really thinking about how those two things really contrast each other. Like when he, when he writes in, oh, I sort out fair play, and then we write in later, I'm just a traveller. I don't think he's actually thinking about that contrast, because certainly I don't think 13 really experiences a conflict there. Like that's her big hero moment. We've presented it pretty uncritically, I think. So I don't think, I don't read the ending as undermining that really or undercutting it, which I, but just meant to just go with it. I think that's really interesting, but you probably could have stopped after I don't think Chibnall was thinking. Right then. Uh, yeah, I don't think Chibnall was thinking about it at all, but I think it's easier to interpret it as the Doctor d d decides that she's a traveller as opposed to the Doctor deciding that what she does is sort out fair play throughout the universe. I think that's the Doctor um, recalling memories of having of what, she's what she has done, which is obviously saving the universe multiple times, and then the Doctor eventually realising actually what I do is go from planet to planet and see what's there and if, if something needs fixing I do what I can. I suppose that's ultimately the better version of Doctor Who. Speaking of recalling the past like that, what I want to brainstorm with you both is the amount of references in the episode. Like obviously we had the one to Deep Breath at the end when she says Deep Breath and Ryan does a Deep Breath. We had the one to the TV movie with Grace as, you know, a medical officer. We had the one to, uh, is it Tomb of the Cybermen, that speech? that uh, the second Doctor has about family. In the back of front of my eyes, that's two minutes I'm man, yeah. Uh, what else was there? Uh, there was reference to Twice Upon a Time with when 13 falls through the train roof. And arguably, because um, the scene changes to nighttime at one point, there is uh, they pass through the, the 11th hour on the way. Ah, oh, very good. Morph, any other ones you can think of? I mean, there, there are teeth in the episode, so that's reference to David Tennant. I'm not nearly as good at this. <laughs> oh, there was a reference to the, um, the Leakley Bible. Uh, the Doctor Where? indirectly references Ulysses and Penelope when she talks oh, about having family that she's lost. Arguably, aren't there a, isn't there a certain segment of fan base who would say that's a reference to Braxiatel and all them instead? I know somebody mentioned the other day the, the Robo of Sherwood spoon. Oh, oh yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, this was for the fans as much as Capaldi's era. It was brimming with references. I have a sort of maybe more general question about the app. Like, did you, were you bored during it at any point? Oh my I God, was yeah. spacing out, yeah, for sure. It's because absolutely everything between the train sequence and the crane's train, crane, train and crane sequences has no reason to be there. The DNA bomb thing is just padding. <laughs> Nothing is done with any of this stuff. 13 deactivates it off screen. There's no real character beats established in it. There's like 30 minutes of the episode you could rip out and nothing would change. There's a lot of scenes that kind of make the episode about sort of death and this alien murdering people, but it's not quite that gripping, is it? It's not as gripping as an episode about a murder spree ought to be. It's so dour, which is at so much odds with the marketing. It was so dark, the whole, dark literally and dark in the story sense. It has <laughs> so much death and darkness in it. Why? When you have, in a Doctor Who story, when you have scenes where some random side character dies, Right. When a really good writer is doing that, within that scene, you'll have maybe what I think of as like a razor blade embedded in the scene. Like, you know, if you have a really angry writer like RTD or Robert Holmes, right, when one of those characters dies, there'll be kind of a point being made or maybe something satirical or something really tragic or just something like quite just twisted in there. And we didn't really get that with this. We just had characters sort of being there and just quite blandly getting killed. The attempt at the big twisted moment was clearly Grace's death. And uh, I'd, I'm not, that's not to say that I believe that it's a twisted moment. It was also um, uh, Tim Shaw's teeth. You know what's twisted about Grace's death? 
Why was she climbing up there? The day was already saved, and the Tangler thing wasn't affecting anything. What was she doing? And what I find twisted about Grace's death is the fact that it's in the episode that it happened at all. I can't believe Chibnall fr fridged like the motherly black woman figure in his first episode after oh, everything yeah. <laughs> he's been saying. <laughs> I mean, we were saying earlier, like, imagine if she got to stay on the TARDIS. Wouldn't that be great? Like, to have, like, an actual even, like, even Complete Evelyn vibe. She could scold the Doctor a bit, she's so much like the Doctor, they'd be total bros. They could, like, amusingly team up against Grime, uh, Grime, <laughs> Ryan and Grime. <laughs> uh, frankly, 13 and Grace would have been a much better TARDIS team than 13, Ryan, Yas, and Graham, anyway. I feel, I mean, I'm sure, she, well, maybe she'll get developed more, but Yas feels so inessential. Like, 90% uh, of her dialogue was gone, what? Yeah, like, yeah, oh, I'll, I'll go do this, or oh, get some new clothes, or, actually, actually, she had one line that I liked. Which is every day is a learning day when he's just assigned to instant oh, pilot crane. My favorite Yaz moment by far, and I'm interested if you guys will know what I'm talking about, is it's like maybe a five second scene. She's in the crane with Ryan and she's rifling through the keys to find the right key to put in the crane to make it go. And we cut to, she drops like two sets down and she uses the last key and she goes, last one. This goes for like two seconds, that little beat. Why was that in there? Did we really need the tiny little bit of tension that she had to go through all the keys off screen to, to get it there? What I will add to that is that she does say, get in, which is clearly a reference to Thin Ice. Oh my god. Oh, very good. I mean, they, they say get in quite a few times in this app, don't Yeah, they? Ryan said it too. She just assumes that's, that's the thing Northerners say, so they're going to say it a lot. Yeah, after the episode, when I was dragging the file to my recycle bin, I was saying much the same. But um, yeah, I mean, with that key scene, I just get a sense they're just trying to fill in every last nook and cranny of the episode with more tension, more things that are happening. But at the same time, it's kind of like not that interesting. On that note of being not that interesting, something I want to pontificate about for a moment is we probably all agree that the best openings of Doctor Who eras are when it has like a very clear vision, like Rose. Uh, the first, 1963 and 2005, had a very clear vision. Audiences got really into it. But here, like, Chibnall has explicitly said he's modelling this after, you know, the Netflix Marvel shows, the DC CW shows. It's a reactionary Doctor Who copying other shows instead of Doctor Who trying to stake out new grounds. Like, Pertwee's era did the same with some shows, and RTD was drawing from Buffy and Soaps and that, but they were mixing those into a new version of Doctor Who. People then tried to copy, like, stuff like Primeval. Yeah, I think the difference is that in 2005, Ross and T. Davies took, he took classic Who and he took elements from, you know, Buffy and the X-Files and all of that, and he morphed it into, not more submerged, <laughs> he morphed it into what became New Who. Uh, and then, you know, Mo Moffat did the same. Uh, he took some classic Who, he took some of Ross and T. Davies' Who, and he made it Moffat Who, and, you know, he made it his own brand. And then with Chibnall, I think for the first time we're seeing a Doctor Who that doesn't have any classic Who elements in it. It's all new Who, it's all Russell T. Davies Who, obviously no Moffat Who, and some Netflix Who. No Wilderness as well, because Chib is never, like this isn't a problem, but he's never indicated any familiarity with Wilderness. Even if he did have any familiarity with it, I don't think he would include it the same way he's not going to include any 80s Who when he has a great familiarity with it and he loves Davison. That said, there was a touch of Soward in there. I mean, I mean yeah, right. Where, where would you say the Soward comes in? Because you might have a different take than me to this. I think there was an appealing bit of... I can think of a certain horde quite like this, actually. A kind of nihilism and meaninglessness of violence and death, particularly in how Grace died and how, uh, what's his name, Carl was treated as well. That made me think yeah. that era of 82. 
Carl in particular, like there's, he's reassuring himself with these types that he's special and valued, but in fact, he is only valued by anyone as a prey for a sort of horrible big game hunter who just wants to kill him. So, and that's sort of that's one of those cases of something that's very ironic, but you're not sure what the hell it's saying. It's just sort of a bit like, haha, putting and laughing at this character. That sounds like day one, frankly. If you take that to a class level, you could say this is the most political episode since the Zygon inversion. Possibly, quite possibly. When I think of series one, and I think of how Rose and Jackie and Nine's relationships were handled, and all like the temporalness of it, like the temporality, how it was affected by the switch to 2006, and all the weirdness and sci-fi-ness mixed with the soapness of that relationship, I can't see a soap doing that, and I can't see a straight sci-fi show doing that. But then I think of the villain in this ep, and I can see The Flash doing that, I can see Stranger Things doing that. I think of 13 building the Sonic, and I can see so many other shows doing that. The only things I can't see other shows doing are like these tiny little notes, like 13 reading a non-existent Sonic interface, that's still something weird and imaginative. Or the mechanics video camera bursting in a flame for no reason. Those feel Doctor Who. They're like the two tiniest scenes. What the, the sense I get is that when RTD brought it back, and also when you know, Moffat sort of took it on, there was something additive, like they were adding something. Whereas with Chibnall, it, there's a sense that it's a bit subtractive, like Doctor Who has kind of been somewhat diminished in order to model itself on something that's not as interesting as Doctor Who. Whereas with RTD, you know, he's adding stuff in and sort of making radical combinations. Chibnall, I think, as well as not being able to, I don't think, I don't think he really has the ability to make to, to make Doctor Who that fans enjoy. But even if he did, I think he would still make Doctor Who that only casual viewers would enjoy. I think that's the whole point of the episode, and it's very clear to me. I'm just looking forward to episodes that aren't written by Chip and Franklin. I mean, that the woman who fell to Earth is quite clearly not for fans. Who will Rosa be for? Uh, that, that is a very good question. Both. I think with the argument that Ngiga just made, I think uh, he's, he, took, he took the very best of Doctor Who and put... But this is well he did. He put the very best of Doctor. Who, he took the very best of Doctor Who and put new elements into it, and his as well as his own elements. And it was in in its own right for fans and for new fans. I think what Morph has just done is that Neo said Rosa, and you know you've you've actually fallen for the classic gambit, which is that you've heard Rose when Neo said Rosa. So that's what Chibnall's trying to do. He's trying to make you think of that classic uh. episode Rose when you see the title of this new episode. Imagine if Rosa Parks is analogued with Rose Tyler in that episode. <laughs> Be legendary. You know, it, could, it could go in any direction. I just you know, all bets are off. This is kind of on a different note, but I'm interested what you guys think of after Thirteen effectively kills Tim Shaw. You know, makes his DNA start to melt, which we've already has signified as fatal, and sends him to teleport to his own planet to die there for some reason. Carl kicks him off, and she angrily says, "You had no right." What gives? Did, she, did he have the right? That is the question. He was already dying. See, see, I, I, that's, I mean, I was very confused at that. That could be like that's a tonal all over the place. Like, if you can interpret it as just like her having hurt pride that her hero moment was interrupted by the dude getting kicked off, but you don't necessarily have to interpret it that way. Did I completely read it wrong, or did she kill him? There? I mean, she said it melted your entire DNA and was banished in all civilized galaxies. I don't feel like it was just a flesh wound. Yeah, she says like you did this to yourself, you know, in quite severe way, like something really bad. It, it does. It does appear like, appear as though he's dying. I'm not sure whether I took that entirely wrong, but I I, I I assumed that he was dying, and she mercilessly has killed him. And uh, Carl then goes on to try and kill him a little bit sooner. And uh, Thirteen would rather have had the kill than Carl. 
maybe that'll be it. You know, 13 has a secret bloodlust that just comes through every so often. Tenant 2.0. Indeed. Although, I mean, argued, maybe, maybe if he teleports back to his home world, they can magically cure him or something, but we're not really hinted as to whether that's true. You say about teleporting to home world, uh, do, you, do you think there might be a Boomtown-esque episode where uh, Tim Shaw returns? No. That'd be fucking in- great. It would not happen. Straven said any order. You can watch him in any order. <sighs> On that note with Tim Shaw's death, though, uh, I'm going to read out a post verbatim a few threads back that I thought was really interesting. 13 could have told the Tooth Fairy that the DNA bomb was in him now, but instead she goaded him into pulling the trigger and then told him once he was already going to die, that's fucked up. At least 12 seemed to feel bad about what he did in deep breath. Did 12 seem to feel bad for what he did? I don't know about feeling bad. He looks pensive after it's happened. And arguably it's not, you know, it's not actually explicitly said what 12 has done in deep breath, so let's be fair. Speaking of Tim Shaw, uh, I noticed a few people were saying that you know, the predator-style aliens hunting humans for sport thing sounds like something who or Tortured has probably done before. It has, in Moving Target, the Susie Solo 2004 audio that we've already streamed. Oh my god. Oh, very interesting. I still feel like it gives me more Sarah Jane Adventures vibes, especially when I look down the list of SJA sort of monsters. I just see things that just aesthetically evoke that a lot. No, it did completely remind me of... Um... I can't remember his name, the yellow guy in The Prisoner of the Jadoon. I think it's, it's the teeth and the eyes, I think, that give me that impression of that, that one SJA character. And it's it's the similar, this guy's evil, he's, he's just an evil alien, that's all he is. There's, there's no real, uh, there's no sense of, I don't want to say humanity, that's stupid, but I think you know what I'm getting at there. There's, there's, there's nothing... From, he's from an evil, like, culture and race as well, from some other evil planet of evil. <laughs> Which is just H.G. Wells, isn't it, really? It's not Doctor Who. Speaking of his kills, was anyone else amused by how we had literally no visual depiction of him killing the mechanic and characters just narrated it like like they were, what? Visual big finish. Yeah. That, that was quite stunning, you know? It's broke open his jaw, too, and it's taken out a turf. You know, literally... They're stood right in front of it. We cannot see this. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. Like, I realise it's quite an intense thing to show in Doctor Who, but I feel like the Capaldi era got away with a lot worse. And Google, did you just say tooth? Tooth. Tooth. Well, yeah, whatever. It's a dialect thing. This is a different note, but you know, with all the comments Chibnall and Jody made about there being a lack of hierarchy, uh, did you guys think that rang true at all to the episode? Was there any hierarchy? Oh, look, there was absolutely hierarchy there. Uh, I made that post the other day about. Um, they all just, they're, they're, I, I think I like the phrase that I used, I've, I've been uh, quoting it in real life. Um, they all staggered into each other's arms, and that was exactly what they did. They didn't they didn't question each other, for one thing, even before they'd met the Doctor, Yas- Yasmin and Ryan were both friends. Um, and they didn't question the Doctor's authority at any point, where even Rose, uh, every single companion, at least in New Who, was always questioned who the Doctor is and what his, or now her, intentions are. And uh, we don't see any of that. What specifically gets me about that is Yaz is literally introduced as someone looking for more authority and more responsibility, but she instantly defers to 13 when she comes on the scene and just does what she says. And they completely go into doing her bidding and doing everything she asks them to do, even right to the very end, to that very final scene where she says, Yasmin, you hold the switch, and uh, Graham, you do this, and, th- and she's telling them all what to do. The only character that doesn't 13's follow 13's orders is Grace, and she dies. Yep, that, that's her punishment for not exactly following the Doctor's orders. 
Weird. See, I think uh, Chibnall, who is secretly uh, Kino, and um, we've all just been reading it wrong. I mean, that, ma- ma- yeah, that maybe that is it. I just, I get, I get the sense that like, and also, you know, in terms of this non-hierarchical Doctor, the Doctor's just one of the mates and stuff. Well, again, stuff that cuts against that when she's like, "Get off my planet," you know. Even that, that's just reproducing the same concept of the Doctor that we've had, you know, for years and years. Like, we haven't evolved the idea of the character at all, and it's not playing up to this non-hierarchical idea. It's interesting you should mention that because a lot, I think a lot of the episode is just purely plagiarised. It's it's literally all just taken from previous Doctor Who episodes, especially that line. I think that I can't remember what episode it's from, but there, that line is said before. Uh, I made a made a comment about the Christmas invasion being having been taken from. It's all it's it, it's it's not referenced. It's stolen. I think Twelve did get off get off this planet in Hellbent, but I think it came up before then as well. To be fair. Uh, you know, Rose cribs so much from Spearhead and Deep Breath cribs from The Girl in the Fireplace and Scream and the Shulker retroactively cribs from Utopia and The Name of the Doctor. So I feel like that's kind of in a Doctor Who tradition. Yeah, see, I'm not worried about cribbing stuff, cribbing material from earlier episodes so much as the conception of who the Doctor is, right? They're trying to evolve it in some places, but they're manifestly not trying to evolve it at its core. Like we're still doing the same old thing, even when we're making gestures and pretenses that trying to move it onwards. I'm more interested in your point that you just said about they're trying to evolve it, because I didn't get that impression at all. Okay, when I say evolve, like, I think a, a, lot, a lot of the Moffat era is kind of concerned with the problems and how the Doctor conducts himself and the things that are toxic about him. And I get a sense in a lot of this episode with uh, 13 that Chibnall's trying to ameliorate that. Like, 13, you know, she apologises for the trauma she's putting her, the people through. You know, she sympathises with Ryan after, you know, he's like, you know, accidentally unleashed death and hell. And she says, I would have done that too. You know, like, this is the Doctor who, you know, it seems like they're trying to make her a Doctor of the people. And yet, and yeah, they say this is not hierarchical and stuff like that. And yet, she's still doing this. I'm the Doctor. I sort out fair play. Get the fuck off my planet, before I, you know, destroy you. I just have one problem with how you've outlined that. And you're saying that Moffat is the one who started. I didn't doing say he started a... that. I said he was concerned well, with it. You're saying he's concerned with it, but wasn't Russell the one who introduced Toxic in the End of the World? I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, RCD was absolutely someone, you know, was aware of the problem, the toxicity in the Doctor's character. I just think he wasn't that concerned about doing anything about it. Whereas Moffat is constantly hitting this idea that the Doctor has needs to develop his character. He needs to overcome these horrible flaws that he has. That is running through all of Moffat's era, I think. And Chibnall is, is in a way a response to that, I think, but I'm not sure it's coming off. I've got to get on my sub box here for a second. Because Chibnall is reminding me of the Coming Soon trailer, right? Where we get a bunch of these actors, some of which I recognised. But... Uh, how to put this? Without, I didn't want a Sim-style reveal at the end, I didn't want a returning cast member, and I knew we weren't going to get it, but I can't stop thinking how much I want Jack to come back, and how much I keep deluding myself into thinking it can happen in the next year or the year after that, since Chimna worked with him as a lead for two years on Torchwood Series 1 and Series 2, much as he worked with Jody and Broadchurch. Because he's a character you can use without that much continuity baggage, like you could with Sarah Jane in Series 2 of New Who. And because Barrowman's much more popular than a lot of those coming soon actors listed, and you know he would scramble to do it as quick as he could. I definitely don't think you're deluding yourself in thinking that he could come back in the next couple of years, because I, I think once Chibnall's gotten over the, the Box of Chocolate series, it's entirely possible that he'd want to, because that, that, that would... Um, that would I mean, I think he's already arguably drawn back in the fans of, of the show who were Russell, the, the RTD fans. So 
to bring back Jack, I think wouldn't be too much of a problem next year, the year after, or after Jodie Whittaker if he's still if he's still around. I think it's worth seeing how. Let's see how the series eleven kind of performs in terms of retaining his popularity, because I think that will depend. That will that will dictate whether or not he goes for more popularity grabbing moves, like bringing back stuff you love, or whether he just kind of keeps on with his current course. If the rest of the episodes are of a similar quality to this, how do you think it will hold up in the ratings and in general audience engagement? Uh, I, I do genuinely think that Series 11 will be very highly rated and very highly reviewed by um, casual fans. I really do. Yeah, I think I think it will keep, stick with the ratings pretty decently. I don't think it will go slump have some horrible crap. <sighs> Consensual displeasure. At least we'll always have Big Finch. And Titan. And shit trip. Mm. Yeah, well... Sorry, what were you going to say before I interrupted you? Um, what, what do you think about the line, um, there's this moment where you're sure you're about to die and then you're born? I like that. Loved it. Yeah, that was one of the moments where Chibnall actually feels like he's got his writer engine on. He's putting out a good, unique piece of dialogue. You mean the only moment? But, yeah. Reminded me of the end of time. Do you think that, um, do you think then that that's where he got that inspiration from, or do you think that's that's an entirely Chibnall statement? I think a lot of fans and writers can individually come to that interpretation. I don't think he cribbed it from Russell, if that's what you mean. Yeah, I think it's a fairly basic interpretation of kind of regeneration process. It's just phrased in a way that's nice. I mean, it's kind of plain, but it is nice. Speaking of the end of the time, am I off base in thinking Legopolis, the end of time part two, when this can be kind of considered a three-parter? And having the Doctor fall from a great height. Yes. Yeah. Damn. What were you hoping we'd say no? Well, you know, there's. What do you guys think of the theory about the Doctor becoming impervious to past methods of death, like the Master's flag at the start of the Doctor Falls? Complete load of shit. <laughs> there was merit to it, but it is a load of shit. I mean, I've never heard of that in my life. Have you never heard that in Giga? Like, no, I've never he heard can't, that theory. He, he can't die from falling because he fell to death in Legopolis, and that's why Ten could survive the huge crash in the end of time. Hasn't he died from radiation poisoning more than once? Yes. Oh, yeah. Doesn't that completely Maybe ruin that theory? Different types of radiation? Maybe? Oh, well, there is that, I suppose. It just seems, I mean, it just seems, it seems unlikely, it seems counter to how the show actually works. What fascinates me though is if one is taken to die of old age, which I don't really believe, I think it was like the vampiric pulling from Mondas. But anyway, if we take him as dying from old age, doesn't that make the Doctor immortal no matter how many regenerations he has left? War died of old age. Oh yeah, he did too. Or maybe a heart attack. I've often thought that. It could very well have been. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, immigrant raised a point the other day. Um, 12, he, what he believes, I'm not sure what you guys think. He believed that 12 wouldn't have stayed for the funeral, but 13 did. I think there's potentially a point there. Arguably, yeah, I, I'd agree. Got no this. Now, as usual, I'd agree with Immigrant there. I, I, do, com I do completely agree with him. Uh, I think that uh, it relates, because uh, uh, I thought of the, there's a, there was a review the other day that said that they called Jody inescapably human. And I think 12 wouldn't have stayed, but 13 staying just, uh, it proves that for me. The funny thing, that review, I think, was using that as a dig because that was a great, excellent New York Times review that made so many good points about the show losing a unique spirit. And that was the last line of it. Yeah, inescapably suggests it's kind of a bad thing, isn't it? Like, you want to escape it. But actually, that kind of her being kind of concerned enough to stay for the funeral, that's again connecting this idea of making the Doctor more personable. I've got two points about the funeral. The first is that I can't stop thinking when Grace died, if we'd had 12 doing this series if he'd have done an Into the Dalek-esque, oh, the top lay's still here if you want to say a few words, fine. 
Yeah, imagine 12 is like flashcards again. <laughs> the other point is the indeterminate time skip between Grace dying in the funeral, verging interview as much as it is me. I can't make heads or tail of it. It's so confusing. What happened? Was she in the mechanics place the whole time? Did the uh, mechanics friend he gave the money for a pint to come back on Monday and see her there and his mate Deb? Like, what, what is going on? Is this where Big Finish is going to fill the gap in, in a few years? The I mean, Carl Chronicle. It absolutely is going to fill in that gap. But see, the, the time skip didn't bother me much. Like, I'm not so concerned about hallucinatory time progression in Doctor Who. Really, what, what upset me, what really versed me about it was just how quickly it just flipped tonally. Like, it felt like not only like we'd skipped... He was embarrassed. Episode, like, we'd skipped an entire episode of television. Like, we'd skipped channels. It felt like we changed channels. Uh, you mentioned Big Finish just there, and uh, I wanted to talk about the final scene. Um, I don't know how you guys felt about it. I thought it lingered too long. I th but I th I d yeah, as you know, I thought the theme was amazing. Uh, I think the purple ha it looks like a purple howl around. I think that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to seeing that in the next episode. But what I was going to say was that um, Chibnall has left little room for Big Finish to have made an audio but between um, the woman who fell to earth and the ghost monument. Do you think that, that there's rumours that every episode is going to be cliffhangered? I cannot hope for anything more. So, so good. Yes. Fuck Big Finish. For two reasons. One, the TV show should be doing what it wants, and I love serializing it more and doing that sort of thing. And two, it's so hilarious seeing Big Finish have to try to contort spots to put new audios in when they've got no room. Like, they, they've put some of Five's audios in episodes, like in the middle of episodes. Or extrapolating that whole Perry companion arc with Five. It's hilarious on every end. I hope they do it the whole series. Um, Immigrant the other day said uh, about fanfic, uh, there'll be a lot of fans who will be quite disappointed about the fact that they can't really fit any of their writing into the series. Fuck, what do you think about the that fans. bit? Fuck the fans. The Chibnall should be doing what he wants to do. He should be writing however he wants, as shit as it is. I don't like this pandering to fans or Big Finish or whatever. I, yeah, that's my view. So what you're saying is, whether you agree, whether you like it or not, you agree with the, the Ch Chibnall doing the show his way? Yes, that's what, I want nothing more. I want him to do exactly what he wants. Even if I hate it, I had the Capaldi ears, I had Bidmade. You know, I've had Doctor Who for me. I want him to be doing very specifically what he wants to do and that to get the audience that's into that. I don't want him to be trying to do what, you know, Netflix and Cape shit is doing. I want him to, well, but what, maybe this is what he wants to do. But maybe he genuinely wants to be reactionary. Do you believe this is what he wants to do? <sighs> I don't think so. I think whenever I start feeling really down on Chibnall, I think of that clip, you know, we played at the start of him saying it was all very cliche, you know, silly monsters running up and down corridors. So what would true Chibnall, the Chibnall who in the era of, of, of the Capaldi years, what would that have been? Countryside. I feel like he's got something in him, and I don't think, maybe he can't get it out, maybe he'd need a producer that's not Strevens to really pull this out of him, but I think there is a Chibnall who I want to see, it's just not this. Do you think one day, one episode, we will see that? That's a really good question, maybe. I think maybe two series down the line, when if he's if he's either secured ratings and he's feeling a bit more relaxed to do what he wants, sort of like Midnight or Love and Monsters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Chib equivalent sent right, writer showcase. Yeah. Well, yeah, all all have listened because you know Moffat listened and wanted to prove he could still write. Write at all. Yeah, yeah. Moffat's uh, listen is definitely another example of that. Yeah. 
Well, you know, even a last of the time awards would be interesting to see Chibbill try to prove that he can't write. Yes, I would be down to see that as well. I mean, there is there is always a possibility that Chibnall's ideal who just isn't that good. Like, you know, I'm sure Toby Whithouse thinks he's writing absolute bloody genius whenever he puts out, you know, Before the Flood or The Lie of the Land, but you know, everyone watches it can see it's actually not that great. To be fair, Whithouse wrote what should have been the series 6 finale and it was a real corker of an episode. I'm saying nothing. Do you think Chibnall, <laughs> do you think Chibnall uh, genuinely thinks that his episodes are that great? No. No, I don't think so. Do, do you think he likes his episodes? Yeah, I think he likes them, but I think he's very aware that he's not writing. He's, he knows he's not Moffat. He's not an idiot. I think um, I, I think Before the Flood it was definitely, uh, just because it was mentioned there, it was definitely Whithouse writing to the best of his ability uh, in order to try and, in, in a bid for showrunner. Whithouse is arrogant in a way, and I don't, you know, he's, he's more, he's pretty successful, but you can see in his other shows as well, he thinks he's writing good stuff. He thinks he's writing, you know, pretty good stuff. Like, uh, which is the second one? Under the Lake, Before the Flood, that opening monologue, uh, which kind of ties into this, because 13 has that monologue addressing us about change being good, and then 12 has that monologue about, you know, Whithouse Googling the, the um, bootstrap the paradox. What yeah. do we think about Gatiss uh, refusing to kill Whithouse in Twice Upon a Time? I'm so verged, you know. No, I'm just upset they did not somehow doubly kill each other at the same time. I wish Moffat had placed a real gun in Gaddis's hand. Uh, I said to Neo the other day, I wish that we were in the timeline in which uh, Gatiss who was, um, had replaced Chibnall who. What, what, what do you think about that? How, how would Gatiss who have fared? Am I mispronouncing when I say Gaddis? Yeah, I think it's Gatiss. It is Gatiss, yeah. He, he tweeted, I'll, I'll always remember this because he, he tweeted a few years ago, um, uh, it's, it's Gatiss, I just think gay, I always do. <laughs> That's cool. I love Gatiss, you know, even when I hate his eps, which the only one I truly hate is the idiot's lantern. Then most of them I don't like. The unquiet dead I like in spite of its politics. And then, uh, what's the one I Sleep No More, I love. Uh, I don't think his who would be as boomer as we think. I think what he writes is very specifically the quick scripts for the other showrunners that are reliable and workmanlike. I think he has some... I mean, I haven't seen Sherlock, so I could be totally off base, but I feel like there's enough of a huge fan in him that he has some sort of style. What I think is seriously interesting is that um, Sleep No More is definitely a Series 9 episode, and The Empress of Mars is definitely a Series 10 episode, so there is merit to what you're saying. He knows when he's writing a script per, for, for a series and for a showrunner. His VNA is extremely acclaimed as well. He can write. Also, I think I think Gatiss has like I think he wants to live up to Moffat almost in some ways. That's, that's, that's why else would he write Sleep No More? Do you think he's trying to impress Moffat? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Do you think he likes Moffat? <laughs> I think he's mates with Moffat, but like you know, he he's he's seen what Moffat does, and he kind of he wants to. He wouldn't want to be do something that was just boring, right? When he's seen what Moffat's been doing with the show, he works with Moffat so much. I genuinely think we, sh uh, maybe not should, but we could credit a lot of Moffat stuff to Gatiss because Moffat constantly used to say, you know, blah, blah, idea evolves out of the discussion with Gatiss. He talks with Gatiss constantly when he's doing other stuff. I'm sure so many ideas he hashed out with a back and forth with Gatiss. Even if Gatiss was being a Yaz and just going, yes, yes, what, no. I really think Gatiss had to have, on some level, a creative contribution to Moffat's era in general just because they constantly talked two parts of one ego yeah uh, what do we think about wrapping up in in five-ish minutes or yeah sure yeah. yeah much as i wish series 11 would i mean i wish it would wrap up in zero minutes but you know we can't really get what we want i am interested in the potential indian episode and uh the witchfinder episode 
Uh, it's a guest writer that the oncoming storm is really keen on, and Alan Cumming and witches that might actually play into 13's gender. Like, I think there's a little potential there. I think the historicals might be what saves this series. Oh, Christ, I think Mallory Blackman's really going to... I, th- I think uh, a lot of people have been meme- memeing about Rosa, but I think it is. it could genuinely be a very good episode. There is part of me that wants to see Rosa. Like, I want to see it go well. I really think it will. It's not a Chibnall episode. It's it's Mallory Blackman's episode, who is obviously is a prominent um, black writer. So, yeah, there is that, but it could still go wrong. I'm always. What about MLK's Death Hotel? <laughs> Just please, God, let it not be that. It looks the exact same. It looks similar. It could be influenced by photos of the period. It doesn't have to be the hotel. What if it's the episode of Thirteen showing Ryan his history and teaching him? whatever lesson she's trying to say. I, I just, I, I, I don't know how I'd feel about that. Do you think it's still possible we're getting that triumvirate of episodes showing the companions, the friends, their, uh, their ancestors? I really bloody hope so. I love that idea. I love that idea of just yeah, going through all the companions' history so much. Absolutely. Also, I, lo- I love that we started this talking about series 11, episode 1, and we've just already given up on talking about the episode itself. We're just going on to the rest of the series. It was, it was honestly that bad. Yeah. Well, how would you rank, uh, let's think, An Unearthly Child, Power of the Daleks, Spirit from Space, Robot, Castor of Alba, what's Six's first episode? Twin Dilemma. Twin Dilemma. <sighs> Time in the Rani. Uh, Time in the Rani, the TV movie. Scream of the Shulker, Rose, uh, The Christmas Invasion, Journey's End, The Eleventh Hour, The Day of the Doctor, Deep Breath, The Woman Who Fell to Earth. How do they rank up? Christ, give me a moment. I'm not doing all those right now, to be honest. What's the best one and what's the worst one? What best? I'm, kind of, I'm leaning towards potentially Spearhead for best, just because it's so good. But maybe Unearthly Child. I don't know. Rose and Unearthly Child, yeah, I definitely think. The Spearhead's amazing, but Rose and Unearthly, I think, are just incomparable. I mean, respect to the TV movie as well, of course, you know, just for what it is. I, I have said uh, The Eleventh Hour, Rose, the TV movie, Spearhead, An Unearthly Child, Deep Breath, Christmas Invasion, Robot, Castrovalva, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, uh, The Twin Dilemma, and Time and the Rani. Why don't you include Shalka, Journey's End, and The 50th? Uh, I don't include Shalka as canon. Has anyone even fucking watched Shalka? I've never watched Shalka. A lot of New Who was cannibalized out of it. RTD specifically said the idea of the Master as the Doctor's companion, which is like a pivotal point for Series 10 and Series 3, comes right from Shalka. Yeah, but it never actually happens, does it? We get the promise of the Master as nah. Doctor's companion, but it always gets ripped from us at the last minute. What were the other two you said, Neo? You said the 50th and another one. And Journey's End. Um, oh god. Uh... They're both pretty low on the list, I'm not going to lie to you, in terms of uh, in terms of Doctor introduction. The 50th does give... The, the Warrior does get an arc in the 50th, which is pretty impressive for a Three Doctors episode. So I just realised that's why you're talking about the 50th. I just thought like, you were using that because you know, Capaldi is technically that's his first episode. But, you know, oh, good thing. not about war. With that then, do you want to rank it in terms of 1 to 10? Uh, I'd say 2. I'm on 3. I'm definitely either 3 or 4. No more, no less. I'm a bit more generous than that. I'd give it like a five, maybe. You're a bit of an apologist, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I'm a bit of an apologist. I think maybe I just don't hate Doctor Who enough. But that will soon change. No, I, I assure you, we all hate Doctor Who enough. I don't know how you guys can hate Doctor Who when Ravenous 2 came out today. Okay, shall we end it there? Yep, that's <laughs> End it all.
cliches, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Three cliches, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Three cliches, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Three cliches. Um, but I still felt that that story was fairly um, boring. Better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Three cliches.